Terrorism, law, and democracy. Terrorism and the rule of law. The international and Canadian reactions to the terrorist crimes of September 11, 2001. Part 8. Keeping the state in check. Welcome to Keeping the State in Check, part 8 of the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy. My name is Khalid Safar. A central question of this series is, how has September 11th affected the rule of law in Canada? In this episode, we examine the theme of oversight and review of the actions taken by government and law enforcement under their new anti-terrorism powers. The closing panel of the conference, Terrorism, Law and Democracy, held last March, was watching The Watchers, Democratic Oversight. Justice James Hugeson of the Federal Court of Canada, Shirley Heafy, Chair of the RCMP Public Complaints Commission, Bob Ray, former Premier of Ontario and former member of CERC, the Security and Intelligence Review Committee, and Alan Borovoy, General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, describe a disturbing lack of oversight and transparency of the exercise of the new powers under Bill C-36. Not only are our domestic oversight mechanisms an area of concern, the international war on terrorism itself has brought the very idea of oversight to the brink of effective irrelevance. The international rule of law has been explicitly recognized by the international community as key to the war on terrorism, to international peace, and to international cooperation. However, the realization of basic human rights, political and social rights, as well as the rules of war have been eroded. The unilateral action of the United States in the pursuit of what President George Bush calls American internationalism gives lie to the principles of fundamental justice that frame international law and cooperation. The pursuit of immunity for American servicemen and citizens by the American administration before the newly founded International Criminal Court only exposes the real desire to minimize oversight internationally. To cite British journalist George Monbiot in an article entitled The Logic of Empire, published in The Guardian Weekly, in the week of August 15, 2002. There is something almost comical about the prospect of George Bush waging war on a nation because that nation has defied international law. Since Bush came to office, the United States government has torn up more international treaties and disregarded more United Nations conventions than the rest of the world has in 20 years. It has scuppered the Biological Weapons Convention while experimenting illegally with biological weapons of its own. It has refused to grant chemical weapons inspectors full access to its laboratories, and has destroyed attempts to launch chemical inspections in Iraq. It has ripped up the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty and appears to be ready to violate the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. It has permitted CIA hit squads to recommence covert operations of the kind that included in the past the assassination of foreign heads of state. It has sabotaged the Small Arms Treaty, undermined the International Criminal Court, refused to sign the Climate Change Protocol, and last month sought to immobilize the UN Convention against torture so that it could keep foreign observers out of its prison camp in Guantanamo Bay. Even its preparedness to go to war with Iraq without a mandate from the UN Security Council is a defiance of international law far graver than Saddam Hussein's non-compliance with UN weapons inspectors. Shirley Heafy is chair of the Commission for Public Complaints against the RCMP. Since 1997, she has presided over sweeping changes to the structure of the commission and the largest public interest investigation in its history. She spoke about her fears about the lack of review of new powers on the same day that her report into RCMP misactions at the APEC summit in Vancouver was released. 
I'm not as wise as Bob is. Um, I'm still in the job, and uh, I'm going to criticize the legislation. This afternoon, I released uh, my final report on the Vancouver APEC hearing. Recalling the events, am I ever glad I'm not in Ottawa? <laughs> Today, uh, recalling the events that took place at the APEC conference in Vancouver in November of 1997 is a timely reminder of the magnitude of the challenge that faces the police. There was poor planning, inadequate communication, poor training, and a limited understanding of the existing law. And this resulted, as most of us know, resulted in a, uh, an unacceptable response by the RCMP to legitimate protest. And I highlight the limited understanding of existing law. And in so doing, I'm referring, for example, to the strip searches of female prisoners that Mr. Ted Hughes said were unjustified far too intrusive and inconsistent with the Charter. I also investigated another incident in which the RCMP displayed some of the same failings. I refer to the overreaction of the RCMP during demonstrations in Saint-Simon and Saint-Sauveur in New Brunswick in May of 1997. To contain demonstrations by families opposing the closure of their French language schools in two small Acadian uh, communities of 800 people, the RCMP employed tactical troops, emergency response team, tear gas units, police service dogs, and a helicopter. <coughs> These confrontations were filmed by the RCMP, and the Canadian public has never seen these tapes, but I have seen them. And having seen them, I understand why and how these tactics, along with improper arrests, left these communities feeling traumatized and fearful of the police. They're frightened of the very very police that's meant to protect them. And all that happened before September 11th. Now, to its credit, the RCMP accepted full responsibility for their, their conduct, uh, in, uh, and they made a public apology, which was, I believe, a first. They, they held a press conference and made a public apology to these in the communities themselves and said they were sorry for the hurt they'd caused. Uh, this went a long way to uh, bring about some healing in those communities. I have no doubt that members of the RCMP have learned a great deal from these uh, detailed examinations of these two events in Vancouver and uh, in New Brunswick. But these events show that even at the best of times, overzealous use of the extraordinary powers that are that vested in the police can undermine our confidence in our police forces. And these are not the best of times. Permettez-moi de revenir sur le, le dilemme que je vous décrivais tout à l'heure. D'une part, nous ressentons le besoin de donner plus de pouvoir à la police pour protéger notre sécurité face à la grandissante, euh, le grand, la grandissante menace euh, du terrorisme. D'autre part, nous appuyons fortement la primauté du droit et nous tenons beaucoup à préserver les droits qui nous sont garantis par nos lois et par la Constitution. Cela explique pourquoi le défi 
auxquelles sont confrontées la GRC et autres, les autres police, euh, forces policières. Pourquoi ce défi est si grand? La police doit déployer des efforts extraordinaires pour prévenir tout abus de ces nouveaux pouvoirs extraordinaires. Par ailleurs, les organismes de surveillance civile ont aussi à relever des défis importants. Les organismes de surveillance civile doivent s'efforcer de comprendre les intentions du Parlement en accordant ces nouveaux pouvoirs. Et ils doivent jouer un rôle de premier, de premier plan en aidant à définir les paramètres de tels pouvoirs. Il y a des raisons d'agir ainsi. The focus of the anti-terrorism legislation is, I know we've all heard quite a few times already, the focus is the prevention of terrorist acts, the prevention as opposed to the prosecution of terrorists. As a result, many cases in which the RCMP exercise or implement these powers may never get to court. And this has a significant, uh, significant consequence. The Commission for Public Complaints Against the RCMP, um, which I'll refer to as the CPC, so that we can go a little quicker, was established in 1988. But prior to the establishment of the CPC, the only civilian supervision of police conduct was the criminal courts. The courts continue obviously to take the lead in explaining the laws regarding police conduct. But if prosecutions under the legislation only rarely occur, then the courts won't have the same opportunity to guide police conduct. And so now civilian oversight agencies must try to understand the extent and intended application of these new powers and often without the usual assistance of the courts. There is a real danger in this post-September 11th world that the new powers will be used to unfairly target people, uh, people based on their racial background. Civilian oversight agencies will have to be alert to this possibility if we are to ensure that we all enjoy uh, equal benefit under the law. I cannot avoid confronting these issues arising from the expanded police powers because both the Minister of Justice, the then Minister of Justice and the Solicitor General of Canada, when addressing the Senate Committee examining C-36, specifically referred to the role of the CPC when discussing police accountability for the use of these new powers. They neither of them can probably foresee all the consequences for the CPC in light of its, its expanded role. But I have already had uh, a chance to see some of the gaps. The RCMP has greater powers, but the oversight agency, the agency that supervises, does not have greater powers. Permettez-moi de vous donner un exemple afin d'illustrer mon propos. Lors de l'élaboration de la loi du Service canadien de sécurité et de la création du comité de surveillance, comme M. Ray a expliqué tout à l'heure, le Parlement a reconnu que lorsque des questions de sécurité nationale sont en cause, les opérations se déroulent toujours dans le plus grand secret. Par conséquent, afin qu'il puisse bien jouer son rôle, le comité de surveillance s'est vu doté d'un important arsenal d'outils de surveillance. Par exemple, les pouvoirs de vérification dont il dispose lui permettent d'enquêter sur toute situation, comme M. Ray a indiqué. Nous n'avons pas ce, la commission des plaintes du public n'a pas ces, euh, ces pouvoirs. On ne peut pas non plus, on ne peut pas examiner les mandats judiciaires ni les affidavits sur la base desquels ils ont été, euh, les mandats ont été obtenus. On, on, on ne possède pas les, de pouvoir équivalent. Le processus euh, sur lequel nous opérons, c'est axé sur les plaintes. Cela signifie que les problèmes sont généralement portés à mon attention par euh, un plaignant. But what happens 
when a potential complainant doesn't know of the existence of the CPC or worse, is afraid to complain about the actions of the police. How then will I become aware that a possible problem may exist? Assuming that I do become aware of a possible problem, in the absence of a complaint, how do I pursue an investigation without the cooperation of the affected person? In Canada, we're proud of our multicultural identity. Many people living in Canada fled countries where fear of the police and distrust of government is a fact of life. And it's all too easy to rekindle such fears even in Canada. I've heard some reports in the last couple of months, some disturbing reports, from some members of our community who are convinced that the police are targeting individuals based on their racial backgrounds. In some cases, I've been specifically told that people are too frightened to complain after what they've gone through. En l'absence de plainte et sans disposer du pouvoir d'examiner les dossiers au hasard, il est difficile de faire enquête et d'évaluer l'usage que fait la GRC de ces nouveaux pouvoirs. En l'absence de pouvoir de vérification, il sera difficile de déterminer si certaines communautés sont ciblées de manière injuste. Si je n'ai pas accès aux documents, aux, 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 aux mandats et la documentation sur la, lesquelles euh, les mandats sont basés, je, je, je ne peux pas garantir à la, à, au, ministre, au ministre de la Justice maintenant et au solliciteur général que je surveille l'usage que fait la GRC de ces nouveaux pouvoirs. The RCMP does have expanded powers and new tools to intervene with force in the lives of civilians. Shouldn't the CPC have expanded powers of oversight as well if we are to truly do oversight? In fact, the RCMP would benefit from expanded powers of civilian oversight, for they would be spared the undeserved public blame in cases where, contrary to public perceptions, their actions may ultimately be shown by the CPC to have been in complete conformity with the law, with Parliament's intentions. The CPC requires additional powers and additional resources to restore a balance, balance the new powers and the resources given to the RCMP. The, the stakes are high, in my view. If civilian oversight of police is not a priority, then we expose ourselves to the risk of entrenching a change in police practices that will be ultimately injurious to our democratic way of life. We need to take care that in trying to root out one form of tyranny, that we don't tolerate another. Shirley Heafy is chair of the Commission for Public Complaints Against the RCMP, speaking before the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy. Justice James Hugeson is a federal court judge in Ottawa and provides a critique of Bill C-36 from a judicial review perspective. La Cour exerce son pouvoir de surveillance en suivant le processus judiciaire traditionnel, c'est-à-dire que le juge entend ce que chaque partie a à dire sur le sujet. Il les laisse faire valoir leur point de vue. Il apprécie les preuves, et quand je dis « il », évidemment, ça comprend « elle » aussi, elle <coughs> apprécie la preuve que les partis apportent, et par la suite, il décide. C'est le processus traditionnel du système contradictoire, ce qu'on appelle le système d'adversaire. Et c'est le garant, à mon point de vue, du résultat 
juste et équitable du processus. Je suis convaincu toutefois qu'en réalité, c'est le processus de contradiction qui sert comme garantie pour nous du, des résultats du processus judiciaire. And that brings me to Bill C-36. All the national security functions which are cast on the federal court have this in common, that they involve at one stage or another, and sometimes throughout the peace, a judge of the court sitting alone in what are called hearings, but they are held in the absence of one of the parties, so that the judge may, if he or she sees fit, take communication of the evidence, the information which is said to be too sensitive to be allowed to be revealed to the person concerned, and not only evidence but also argument, which may rely on the evidence or may deal with matters which may be too sensitive to be revealed to the public. And this is not a happy posture for a judge. And you are, in fact, looking at an unhappy camper when I tell you about this function. I often, usually, when I speak in public, I make the customary disavowal that I am not speaking for the court and I am not speaking for my colleagues and I am speaking only for myself. I make no such disavowal this afternoon. I can tell you, because we talk about it, we hate it. We do not like this process of having to sit alone, hearing only one party, and looking at the materials which are produced by only one party, and having to try to figure out for ourselves what is wrong with the case that is being presented before us, and having to try for ourselves to see how the witnesses that appear before us ought to be cross-examined. You know, if there was one thing that I learned in my practice at the bar, and I've managed to attain it through all these years, it is that good cross-examination requires really careful preparation and a really good knowledge of your case. And by definition, judges don't do that. We don't get to prepare our cases because we don't have a case. And we don't have any knowledge except what is given to us. And when it is only given to us by one party, we are not well suited to test the materials that are put before us. We hate hearing only one party. We hate having to decide what, if any, sensitive material can or should be conveyed to the other party. We hate, or I certainly do, I'm not sure that everybody feels the same about this, hate sitting in a bunker, because that's what it is, in a sealed, windowless courtroom deep in the bowels of a building in Ottawa, <laughs> um, where the, the, the air is terrible, and the only thing that is good is the coffee, I can tell you. Uh, but we hate it. And I don't think it makes us do our job particularly well. We greatly miss, in short, our security blanket, which is the adversary system which we were all brought up with, and which, as I said at the outset, is, for most of us, the real warranty that the outcome of what we do is going to be fair and just. I want to be very careful, because I don't want to give offense to the lawyers from the Department of Justice who appear before us representing CSIS and the other agencies who are sometimes involved in these matters. They do their very best to be fair. We certainly do our best to impress upon them that we expect them to reveal all the facts to us, including those which do not 
assist their case. But they too have an impossible job. They're, they're there to present the case of the government. And no matter how many strictures we may place upon them, it's extraordinarily hard for them to argue both sides of the case at the same time. They, as I say, they do as good a job as one can expect. I guess what I'm also saying is that one can't expect them to do very much in the circumstances. And it's certainly not as good as it would be if we did have representations from somebody who did represent the other side. Now, there is an analogy which is sometimes made by people who, who defend this system. And first of all, let me say that, that uh, I guess having us, the judges of the federal court, do this is better than having nobody do it because if it wasn't us who would it be but the analogy is sometimes made to the much more traditional system of search warrants and the somewhat less traditional but pretty well established system of uh, electronic surveillance warrants it's not a very good analogy i have to tell you because Persons who swear affidavits for search warrants or for electronic surveillance can be reasonably sure that there's a high probability that those affidavits are going to see the light of day someday. With these national security affidavits, if they are successful in persuading the judge that they should not see the light of day, they never will. And the fact that something improper has been said to the court may never be revealed. Now again, I have to say, to the huge credit of the Department of Justice, in one case, and it was very much a headline case at the time, and I remember it very well, I was in the Court of Appeal at the time, it came to light that there was material in a CSIS affidavit which had been laid before a judge uh, at that time of the trial division, and the case was then in appeal, and it was coming on to be heard by us that day. And that morning, the department withdrew the application because it had learned that there was material in the affidavit which was improper and not correct. Again, I, 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 I have every confidence that our Department of Justice is doing the best it can. I'm just not always satisfied that the best it can is always going to be the best. I don't know if there's any solution to this. Warrants for electronic surveillance are a sort of a similar situation. You heard this morning somebody tell us that the statistics show that of, of 1,500, did I hear the figure right? Of 1,500 odd applications for electronic surveillance, there was some number of less than 100, I believe, that had been turned down. That's the trouble. What, did, what was the number? Twelve. Twelve, thank you. Less than a, a dozen of 1,500 turned down. That's the trouble. It doesn't matter how good your judge is, and it doesn't matter how good and how honest the lawyer is. If you have a case that's only being presented on one side, you're not going to get a good case. I don't know if there's any solution. If there was an easy one, of course, somebody else would have thought of it long ago. Uh, it does occur to me, however, that it might be helpful if we created some sort of system of somewhat like the public defender system where some lawyers were mandated to have full access to the CSIS files, the underlying files, and to present whatever case they could against the granting of the relief that sought. I am told that this already happens within CSIS that within CSIS, the case to be made for concealment has to be presented and has to carry over a case presented by other CSIS officers who have access to all the material. But if that is the case, then I'm not sure what the judges of the federal court are doing in the picture. And if I may be forgiven for using the expression, I sometimes feel a little bit like a fig leaf. Thank you.
Justice James Hugeson of the Federal Court of Canada speaking at the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy. Ontario's 21st Premier, Bob Ray, recently resigned as member of the Security and Intelligence Review Committee, the CSIS Oversight Committee. He talks about his concerns for oversight of intelligence gathering in Canada. I am uh, no longer uh, a member of the CERC panel. My, uh, my time uh, was uh, well served uh, and enjoyed it very much, and I'm happy to talk about it. In fact, I'm now probably a little, a little freer to... Uh, to talk about it than, uh, than I might have been before. In the sense that uh, certainly I took the view as a member of the CERC panel that it was not appropriate uh, for me to comment on the legislation or to say anything about it. Uh, but now that I'm no longer a member of the panel, I don't feel any such constrictions. To understand CERC's uh, strengths and weaknesses, uh, one has to go back to its origins and recognize that it, uh, it flowed from the conclusions of the McDonald Report, which were that the, uh, the, the, the questions of political intelligence and issues of, of uh, terrorism and issues of, of, uh, of uh, activities of that kind uh, were more appropriately uh, assessed by uh, an agency that had uh, much broader sets of skills views, judgments, and balances than uh, that a police force uh, that, uh, in fact, led to the creation of CSIS uh, and to the uh, establishment of CERC, which was a review agency uh, whose responsibilities uh, are really quite interesting. The, the agency consists of, uh, it's very small in terms of its size, it consists of uh, usually five uh, members of the uh, of the committee uh, who are all uh, appointed to be privy councillors. Some of them already are privy councillors. In my case, I was not. I was appointed to privy council, which simply means that you take an oath of uh, of secrecy and you are allowed to see uh, documents which have a high high level of, of secrecy. And it, it means that uh, we are allowed to look at all CSIS documents, all uh, information collected by CSIS. Uh, the only thing we're not allowed to look at, and I'll come to this in a minute, are cabinet documents, nor are we allowed to review uh, cabinet recommendations, which uh, in some cases are uh, issues of significant, uh, quite significant importance for, uh, for the country. The strength of CSIS is that it, it has uh, an ability to uh, hear complaints, to, to, to look at complaints in some considerable detail, uh, to really challenge in the course of a hearing uh, in a much more adversarial way than I think would, would be clearly be the case in, as Mr. Justice Hugeson has, has described it. Uh, but but only after the fact. I mean, we're looking at we're looking at situations long, long after they've taken place. We're a review agency. We're not an, an agency which anticipates uh, what's taking uh, what's taking place. And I, I think that the, the country has clearly made uh, made a kind of judgment. And that is to say, in some countries, for example, a lot of this review activity is carried out by active politicians, as opposed to um, we, I describe the CERC panel as consisting of the deposed and the decomposed. Uh, I'll let you decide which group I'm in. Uh, but still, people who have had an active experience in, in politics who, or in public life, uh, who are, uh, have a very strong view about the need to, to uh, uh, make the agency work and to make sure that the civil liberties of Canadians are, are protected uh, as best we can. Uh, and those strengths, I think this, and, and, and the, in exchange for that, uh, give a group of people complete access to, to everything so that there are nothing held back, as opposed to those countries where active politicians on committees are said to review the activities of, of the agencies, but in fact the agencies uh, in those circumstances are extremely reluctant to share uh, any detailed information because they're afraid of leaks and they're afraid that people will, 
will uh, run away with the information and use it for some other purpose. Now this obviously causes some uh, anxiety in the relationship between CERC and Parliament and also in the, 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 the very difficult, uh, uh, those of you who've ever read our reports or read our reports will know that it's very hard to know what the hell they're all about. Uh, because you're constantly having to say someone said this about this and that and da da da. No, you really don't know what is that all about. Um, uh, and that's a very legitimate question that comes up. And I think one of the things we're, I think when we look at how the country is changing following September the 11th, I think one of the issues we're going to have to look at as a country is what kind of information can be made uh, more publicly available, just so Canadians are aware of the kinds of issues that uh, that are constantly being wrestled with by uh, by CERC. Uh, let me just say a little bit about you know how is Canada changing or how do, how will CERC change following September the 11th and what are what are some of the dilemmas or challenges that the that CERC faces. The the first one it seems to me um, goes back to the, the the decision that was made uh, by the government when when CERC was established and that is that CERC looks at CSIS we don't look at intelligence more broadly. And one of the things that everybody should understand is that the intelligence activities of the Canadian government go way beyond CSIS. There's an extensive unit in the Privy Council office, there's the whole uh, DND operation which uh, we, we only touch uh, peripherally uh, and which has one judge uh, without real statutory authority who's reviewing all of that uh, activity and all of those, uh, those issues. And increasingly, the whole issue of immigration is, is relates very closely to the work of CSIS, of CERC, and yet we can't review decisions or issues that are, are touched upon by the Ministry of, by the Department of Immigration or by the Minister of Immigration. Uh, we can only touch on the reports that CSIS makes to immigration with respect to, uh, to individuals. And we've, in my experience, uh, over the last five years, done a lot, done, been doing a lot of, of that. Uh, but we have no, uh, we are a review agency which has, we have no statutory authority in the sense of we can't change anybody's decision. If a deputy minister d denies someone security clearance, we can take issue with that decision. We can ask that he think about it again, but ultimately the, the, the decision is up to the deputy minister and the cabinet again to decide whether or not that will, uh, that will uh, happen. So our capacity to review is not, in my view, as broad as it should be. And in fact, the CERC report two years ago said that it was time for the Canadian government to look at the question of the review of the activities across the spectrum of the government because our, our ability to do this was, was confined. And I am a great believer that these things don't happen by accident. The government clearly decided when it established CERC that it was going to limit CERC's activities to CSIS and we were not going to have access to cabinet decisions and we were not going to be able to review uh, at that political level and we were not going to be able to review the activities of the Privy Council and there were a lot of things we were not going to be able to do and we're still not able to do them. Uh, I believe that with C-36 and all that has followed September the 11th, this will be an issue of increasing concern because it really means that there are a lot of activities with respect to the collecting of information about individuals and the assessment of those individuals that is not in fact subject to review and in particular I want to focus on one question and that is going back to the McDonald report remembering the bifurcation between CSIS and the RCMP one of the things that Canadians have got to begin to debate and discuss is the fact that we are now, by criminalizing so-called terrorist activity, we are in fact going back to the pre-McDonald pattern where the powers and work of the RCMP will take on an increasingly political character. And I'm not here suggesting that there's an easy answer to this dilemma because I don't think that we could as a country have sat back and done nothing after September the 11th, particularly with respect to, to the knowledge that it gave all of us about the, uh, the sophistication uh, and the uh, degree of coordination, clearly, 
uh, that led to uh, to that uh, to that event. Uh, and so there is a question, and I think it's a legitimate one, though, is to say, well, if the RCMP is in effect going to become the lead agency uh, in looking at uh, at the question of terrorist activity in the country, then the question becomes, well, wh what can CERC do in that circumstance, or if not CERC, then where? Uh, because the advantage of CERC as an instrument is that while it is um, in part driven by complaints, it is not exclusively a complaint agency. It is an agency that can say at any given time, if you look at the law, its powers are really quite broad in terms of its capacity to review and to ask questions. We can ask questions about anything uh, with respect to the activities of, of CSIS. There's nothing that CSIS does that we can't review and question. Uh, taking the, the policy of, of uh, issues as a whole in, 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 in CSIS and, and so on. Uh, but I think that, that, that my political judgment or experience uh, would tell me that, that governments have historically been very reluctant uh, to deal with the question of review and oversight. <laughs> Uh, and only get into review and oversight when they have to. Clearly, the events that led up to the establishment of the McDonald Report put a tremendous burden on government to say, we've got to do something. These guys are a little bit out of control here. We've got to do something to inject an element of accountability back into that. Uh, then when the report came out and, go and government began to look at, well, oh, we don't want to go too far here. Let's, let's do what we have to do. Uh, and now with the, the question of what is the political climate or political culture post-September the 11th? And that is a question that I think we really have to uh, face up to as Canadians. And we should not allow the very legitimate and necessary uh, establishment of a, of a capability to deal with a real threat uh, and I, for one, would not want to suggest to anyone that Al-Qaeda does not pose, or any other organization of a similar type, does not pose a real threat to the security and to the lives of Canadians. I think it would be an irresponsible and foolish person who would make such a statement. But we should not allow that necessary response uh, to take away from the need for us to be continually vigilant about the need for balance and the need for review and the need for for oversight and I would suggest to you that our review and oversight is not is not does not match <laughs> the extent of the structure which is now in place uh, to uh, to uh, to deal with the with the with the perceived uh, and real uh, threats that that exist, that is something that should not be a concern only to a few lawyers or only to a few people. Uh, the structure of civility of our country depends on the concern of every person uh, about uh, the extent to which uh, these kinds of activities take place without. Uh, without sufficient review and without sufficient judgment. Last point I would make, and and I've been on my work on Cirque, I I reached this this of this view after some considerable debate and study and and review of, of a couple of cases, and the reports are public so that so that it's easy for me to refer to them. <laughs> there is. Nothing that happened on September the 11th takes away from the challenge of understanding that there is a difference between people who are dissidents and who have a profound disagreement with the politics of, uh, of any country in the world and indeed even with the politics of Canada, the difference between that and terrorism. And this is the continuing challenge that we face. It's the reason that CERC was created. If you read the McDonald Report, 
you'll see that he points to this question that police agencies are not often that good at making that distinction because they will always err on the side of security. They will always err on the side of saying, well, we're not, we, we're not sure if, he's, if, he's, if he is, but uh, we can't afford to make a mistake on the other side. So we're always, we're always going to move in that direction. And that's understandable. But you also want somebody to say, wait a minute, this person, yes, he is a, a, he is a strong critic of the government of X, Turkey, to give you an example. He, uh, he is a strong critic of the government of Turkey, and he feels profoundly that his civil rights, as occurred, have been taken away. Uh, and, are th are, and, and have been taken away by his government, and he feels very profoundly that when he comes to Canada as a political refugee, that he should be able to voice those concerns, and he will participate with a number of other people in, in various rallies and dinners and, and speeches and, and events and fundraising and all sorts of other activities. We have to be able to distinguish between that and somebody who is actively participating in uh, a terrorist cell in Canada. It's a very hard thing to do. Sometimes it's not entirely clear. It requires incredible political judgment, uh, the exercise of a great deal of discipline, and a great deal of, of intelligence. It requires people who are sensitive to the politics of each one of those countries, and each one of those cultures, and each one of those jurisdictions. And I would just observe that our intelligence community, like that in the United States and like that in the UK, came out of a Cold War culture in which it was apparently or allegedly relatively easy to tell the good guys from the bad guys, uh, and in which the sides were clearly drawn and there were things that one did and that's what one did. We're now in a very, very different world. And I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of catch-up that has to happen within the intelligence community to recognize the, 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 the incredible complexity of that world. And I'm not saying for a moment, I would not want my remarks to be construed as saying there is no terrorist threat, we're locking up the wrong people, we don't know what we're doing. I wouldn't suggest that. I wouldn't say that for a moment. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have to have the ability within our agencies to identify clearly and as often as, as humanly possible, correctly, this distinction, because it is a real distinction. And if we don't make this, we are, in my view, uh, threatening the fabric of the civil liberties of Canadians. Thank you. Bob Ray, former Ontario Premier and member of the Security and Intelligence Review Committee. Alan Borovoy has been General Counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association since 1968. He gives his experience and perspective on the new anti-terrorism powers in terms of civil liberties concerns. Like Bob Ray, I too think that we do face genuine threats from terrorism. Unlike him, if I understood his remarks, I have much more doubt about the need for the kind of legislation that has been enacted to deal with it. However, that's for another time. The questions now are where do we go from here? In view of the new powers that the anti-terrorist measures have given to the police, Canadians are probably more vulnerable than ever to infringements of their civil liberties. It is therefore probably more important than ever to develop devices that can detect, deter, and correct whatever improprieties the police may perpetrate. The existing devices are woefully inadequate. Apart from a few narrow exceptions, 
It is very difficult in this country to get an independent, publicly subsidized investigation of police abuse allegations. And I'm talking about the investigative stage, which is so critical to what happens afterwards. You'd have to turn the country upside down to find an easy remedy, an easy way to get an independent and publicly subsidized investigation. For the most part, the investigations are handled by the very police force against which the complaint has been filed. This means that those officers have collegial relations, the investigators, have collegial relations to maintain and departmental interests to protect. This is what we traditionally call in this country a conflict of interest. In short, the system is, may I create a new pun, cop heavy. These things occur to me sometimes and I cannot restrain myself. <laughs> what we need therefore, my first proposal, is in every jurisdiction in this country where these new powers are exercised, a system for independent investigation and review of civilian complaints against the police. As has been properly pointed out by speakers before me, that's not good enough. Anyone who has lived in the real world for longer than an hour knows that lots of people who have grievances against the police are very reluctant to come forward with them so that complaints-driven systems are not good enough. And indeed, there are all kinds of issues that nobody knows about. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association has been advocating for many years now a system for independently auditing police practices and police policies. Independent agencies armed with ongoing access to police records, facilities, and personnel should be able and empowered to conduct self-initiated probes into what's going on. No decision-making power. They should simply disclose and propose but not decide. The decision-making would remain where it is, but the decision-makers should have to function under the impact of the publicity generated by these kind of audits. That's the second recommendation. The third, we have to rethink the relationship between the government, between the civilian masters and the police. It's a rather peculiar situation in this country. If you look at the province of Ontario, you see it explicitly provides that police services boards shall not give the police directions for their operational decisions. And even where the legislation doesn't say that, this is the practice in lots of cases. Of course, I well remember the words of Prime Minister Trudeau during the time of the RCMP scandals when he was saying the minister of the day should not have a right to know what the police are doing constantly. I also understand why this came into being. 
largely because of a fear of politicizing the police. But the question is, how in the world are you going to have civilian accountability for the police unless the civilian authority has some kind of power to give direction to the police? I know that we concocted a distinction in this country between policies and operations. The civilian authorities can give direction on policy, but not on operations. In practice, this distinction has often fallen by the boards. Let me remind you of what happened at Ipperwash in Ontario. The Ontario Provincial Police went into, into the park. This was a park being occupied apparently unlawfully by a group of Aboriginal people. The OPP abandoned its traditional policy of restraint in these matters and went into the park to remove the Aboriginal occupiers. Incidentally, after only about a day of the occupation and the park wasn't slated to reopen, it had closed for the season and it wasn't slated to reopen for months. One wonders why there was such a rush. And in the melee, an unarmed Aboriginal occupier was shot dead. The interesting thing to me is what the cabinet ministers in charge said in the legislature when they were being pummeled by opposition questions. The attorney general said, there was no political interference with the police. It would be highly inappropriate. The then Premier Harris said, we knew nothing of the OPP buildup. It was not our business. Not their business. He was accused of not telling the truth. If indeed he was not telling the truth, this would be pretty awful. But I suggest to you that if he was telling the truth, it might even be worse. What is he saying? That an operation of that magnitude is no business of the government? How are you supposed to have accountability if the government, if the civilian masters ha can have no involvement or even knowledge of an operation of that magnitude? Suppose we decided to uh, do battle with a comparably sized group from a foreign country, would anyone suggest for a moment that anybody but the political authority would make that decision? Then why should it be so different if we're doing battle with our own citizens? Imagine former U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno saying that the FBI seizure of Elian Gonzalez was not her business. And this is official doctrine in much of this country. It requires some serious rethinking. First, independent investigation and review of civilian complaints against the police. Second, independent auditing. CERC would be a good body to do it. There may be others. I'm not wedded to the format. I am to the principle. And third, a new kind of relationship. And incidentally, insofar as the risk of politicizing the police is concerned, that's one function independent auditing can help with. In, I would imagine that if we had an independent audit system, that chiefs of police, if there was occasion for the civilian masters 
to give them instructions, they would say, put it in writing, minister, or to the police services board so that it could be audited. There are ways to deal with that issue as well. I don't make these suggestions because I think the police are more evil than the rest of us. It's because I think they are no less human than the rest of us. Respectfully submitted. <laughs> Alan Borovoy, General Counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, speaking before the conference Terrorism, Law and Democracy. This has been Keeping the State in Check, Oversight and Mechanisms and the Rule of Law, Part 8 of the documentary series Terrorism, Law and Democracy. I was Khalid, and this has been a long-term memory radio presentation from CKUT 90.3 FM, the People's Power Station in Mount Real. Join us next time for Part 9, Community Forum, 